This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So welcome to the BBC Music Magazine podcast. I'm Oliver Condy, the magazine's editor. With me today in the studio are managing editor Rebecca Franks and editorial assistant Freya Parr. Hello. Hi. So we're here today to chat about the September issue, which is out now, and it's packed full of features, news, interviews, reviews, as usual, including expert opinions on dozens of new releases. This month, we have a reader offer for you. We've teamed up with streaming service Prime Phonic to give you four months of access absolutely free. So sign up and you can enjoy delving into more than 100,000 albums. Setting up your free access is very easy. Go to www.primephonic.com slash music and use the voucher code 24BIT. That's 24BIT, 24BIT. So without further ado, let's get on with the show. It's been another busy month in the classical music world. Freya, what's been the headline? Well, this is quite a fresh news story and we've been waiting with bated breath for the new uh, principal conductor of the London Philharmonic Orchestra and we finally have him. It's Edward Gardner, who will be taking over in 2021 from Vladimir Jarofsky, who's been there a really long time. He's kind of been with the LPO since 2003 as principal guest and then in 2006 he became principal conductor. So... He's kind of had his feet well and truly under the table. So, yeah, Edward Gardner has a, has a big act to follow, but it will be great, great to have him back. It's the first English conductor they've had, or British principal conductor of the orchestra, since the 60s. So, yeah, he will continue on as chief conductor of the Bergen, Bergen Philharmonic Orchestra. 
and will initially join for five years with the LPO. I really like Ed Gardner, actually. I think he's done wonderful things with the Bergen Phil and, of course, at ENO, where he was there he was there a long time, actually. I mean, mm. he's, he's um, championing of English music and Polish music as well, Lutoslavski um, I, I, and Szymanowski as well. I think he's been a, a great force for good, and I think the LPO is a great home for him, actually. Definitely. And I think um, Vladimir Jorowski has overseen some really fantastic concerts and inventive programming. They've had that big Rester's Noise Festival that they did there, and recently uh, a lot around Stravinsky. And it's been very inventive, and I think the orchestra sounds really great, actually. So I think it's quite an exciting time for Edward Gardner to be coming in. And I'm really excited to see what he's going to do, what his stamp is going to be, and how he's going to differentiate the orchestra from the, the really thriving concert scene in London, actually. We've got Rattle at the LSO, so the heavyweights there. Mm-hmm. The Philharmonia's just announced they'll have, um, they've started with Santu and Matthias Ruvali. So it's quite an exciting time, I think. So and the RPO's got Petrenko starting. Yes, he's coming, so isn't he? Yeah. It's all very fresh on, in London at the moment. Yeah. Mm. And I'm, I'm, we, we, next issue, we're interviewing Omar Mir Welbo, who's taking over the BBC yeah. Phil. And what's interesting, we've just got the copy in, is that he talks about um, how you get an orchestra to be individual, how you get it to be your orchestra, how you settle down with it. And because you say Vladimir Jarovsky has been with the LPO for a long time, what is... Ed Gardner going to do to put his stamp on it? I definitely want to find that out. And because uh, he's done some superb things like that Britain Peter Grimes that he did with Stuart Skelton, which I think I've uh, heard at ENO and up in Edinburgh. And it really was one of the most electrifying and kind of chilling things I've ever really seen in, in, in opera. Um, so I think if, you can fi- if they can find these right projects, I think there's definitely huge potential there. And it's quite good. I kind of, when we first got the press release through, I thought, oh, he's not starting till for quite a few years. <laughs> We've got, it's quite a long way off. But actually, he will be performing, I think, four times in the current season and like the upcoming season. And then we'll also open the season after. So I think we'll be able to see little teasers mm. of what he's got in store I mean, that all, I mean, that always happens. I mean, Simon Rattle had been touted, well, for the last 10 years, yeah. it seems like <laughs> it anyway, as, as principal conductor of the LSO. So, uh, so yes, it takes a long time for everything to sort of mm. finally actually be official so. yeah the only thing i will say is that it still means that in london they still don't have any female conductors yeah. at the heads of their orchestras <laughs> mm. it's all just going cbso yes but. or any uh, any racial diversity there either no. mm. um so no black conductors or any conductors of any sort of asian origin either so mm, yeah. uh yes maybe the rlpo can yes where petrenko will be going to the rpo from yeah. the rlpo and we're all still lives. waiting for that announcement so it'll be interesting to see who, mm. who they go with definitely yeah Absolutely. Right, so let's move on to the next story. And we've got a short piece of music before we talk about that. Sean Sheba playing uh, a Scots tune from his wonderful Soft Loud album on Delphian Records. And uh, Sean Sheba was the Young Artist of the Year at the Royal Philharmonic Society Awards last year in 2018. And the reason we're playing that is because the Royal Philharmonic Society is going through something of a change with its new chief executive, James Murphy, who's decided that the Royal Philharmonic Society should be a bit more of a mouthpiece for the classical music world at large and and needs to entice new members, younger members, 
and 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 also needs to sort of entice them in with a with a much more um, accessible membership rate, so a monthly rate of say five six pounds that sort of thing, much like the National Trust or the Royal Horticultural Society does to to sort of get people in and and really be involved in classical music and the direction it's going in this country. I think is an exciting um, new step, and I really look forward to seeing what the RPS does next. I thought it was such an interesting story because very familiar with the Royal Philharmonic Society, but actually, you know, they're quite right. It doesn't really have the same place in our national consciousness as, say, the National Trust. And why shouldn't it? Actually? No reason why not. Yeah. No. And so I thought it was really fascinating. That's actually kind of never, just, you know, it never really struck me. But I think there's a real opportunity again there. For... And of course, the RPS is responsible for so many great commissions. I mean, it commissioned yeah. Beethoven to write the Symphony Number no. Nine, the Choral Symphony, yeah. Mendelssohn's Italian Symphony, Saint-Saëns Third Symphony, the Organ Symphony. These are great masterpieces, yeah. <laughs> all down to the foresight of the Royal Philharmonic Society. So what over the years, intervening years? went slightly awry to mean that the RPS was a bit fusty and a bit unapproachable. Yeah. It's not in kind of common parlance. I don't think necessarily the masses know about it in the same way they do with the, you know, the National Trust and things like that, whereas Mm. actually it can become such a focal part of everyone's lives in that way. Mm. But whenever there are countryside issues, of course, you hear from somebody from the National Trust or English Heritage. Whenever there are, you know, I don't know, news stories about bees in your garden, it's the RHS. (laughs) You know, why isn't something like the RPS as a mouthpiece for classical music in general? Because, you know, we just generally sort of bring on a musician or a conductor, but we need a society like this, which is a, a wonderful society it for is. supporting mm. live music and it does so much great work already it really yeah. does but i think like radar. stepping up to make that really active kind of really visible role mm. can only be a good thing definitely yeah. Absolutely. So we're looking forward to seeing what happens next. Uh, Rebecca, what's your story? So this again is news just in today, in fact, um, which is about a new choir that's launching this autumn. Uh, you know, I think, oh, another choir, do we need another choir? <laughs> but this one has a specific aim, which is to spread the message of environmentalism through music. And the choir is going to be called Nature's Voice. It's been set up by composer, arranger and countertenor Jonathan Darbin, And they're doing their first concert this October at Temple Church in London. And their idea is to combine music making with um, sort of commentary about the environment, essentially. I think their first one, they're having uh, distinguished environmental law barrister James Cameron. So he's going to be speaking. So I think they just want to kind of raise awareness, essentially, through their music making, which I thought was quite an interesting idea and just like quite a... Uh, very topical. <laughs> well, yes, I mean, I suppose we're so used to either politicians talking about environment or <laughs> Extinction Rebellion talking about environment, you know, it's either protests or politicians, and it's so nice to see it come from another area, mm. actually. You know, music, you know, always been quite powerful in terms of the how it how it um, communicates uh, either political or social views, and this is this is a very good example. Definitely, and I think there are, there are lots of composers, I mean, you think of John Luther Adams, the American yeah. um, environmental yeah. activist, who actually then decided to give up environmental activism in that kind of traditional sense and use his composing in a way to Mm. raise awareness about the environment. Um, So I think it's interesting, yeah, to find performers making that decision as well. And I think think we mentioned it on one of our previous podcasts. There was an orchestra maybe in Sweden, I think it was from memory, which is now looking at um, air travel and the performers that they have with them, whether they could be using the train instead and maybe not even booking um, soloists who use planes. 
So I think there's a whole big conversation mm. that's mm. Sort of maybe taking place. Of course, Sweden's at the head of this sort of flight shame movement that we're all sort of gradually moving into the idea that we yeah. should be looking at alternative, alternative ways to go yeah. abroad. And, mm. you know, whether trains are just as environmentally damaging as planes, who knows? Mm. But, um, you know, I think it's, an, it's encouraging to know that at least somebody, a major orchestra, I mean, they fly everywhere, don't they? Mm. Some of these orchestras take <laughs> dozens and dozens of flights on tours. Mm. Um, you know, it's encouraging to see one orchestra taking the lead. And I think as well um, with this, Nature's Voice is yeah, it's the name of the choir. And in their first performance, they're sort of doing lots of music about woods and trees and sort of with natural theme. And actually, just on a musical terms, that's some of the very, best music. Yeah, some of the best music is <laughs> about nature, isn't it? So it quite, works quite well on that front too. Yes, absolutely. Well, we mustn't forget our website at classical-music.com. You can read about all the latest music happenings. In fact, more news than we've been talking about even today. You can read thousands of reviews. Um, and we're also on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. We have an iPad edition, which is available on the App Store. Oh, and if you fancy subscribing to our print edition, we have a special discount for our wonderful podcast listeners. You can now get 30% off every six issues, which takes the cost down to just £25.15. That's a bargain. You can claim the offer by visiting buysubscriptions.com slash music podcast. So I think it's time to talk about the magazine and uh, the cover of the September issue features the wonderful Edward Elgar because it's 100 years since the cello concerto was composed and we've got Julian Lloyd Webber, a real veteran of performing this wonderful piece of music. I think he recorded and performed it several times um, over his performing career. Of course, he's now retired as a cellist and is principal at the Royal Birmingham Conservatoire doing wonderful work up there. But we grabbed him to give us his personal take on the cello concerto and he's also performing it on our cover cd and you can hear a quick extract now Julian Lord Webber playing uh, the Elgar Celic, the opening of the Elgar Cello Concerto with the BBC Philharmonic conducted by Jan Pascal Tortelier, and that was recorded at the Bridgewater Hall in Manchester live in May 1997. It's a beautiful uh, and, and very different interpretation to, say, for example, uh, Jacqueline Dupre's, and, and it's, a, it's a very individual take, and it's, it's exceptionally beautiful. And the piece itself is a wonderful journey through the Cello Concerto, so both Julian's experience with it, the story of how it's written, the idea that this was Elgar sort of um, responding to, uh, you know, the, the terrors of the First World War and his country that had been ripped to shreds and the memories that had been destroyed. You know, this is um, it's a very powerful, very powerful feature indeed. Mm, I really enjoyed reading this. And as well, it's just 
when that, that op- opening is so oh it's just such a wonderful opening isn't it to the music but it, it has become so associated with that Jacqueline Dupre recording so in a way it's really nice to step away from that and just look at the actual piece and as you say the circumstances and really appreciate this concerto for the masterpiece that it is yeah and of course he, he, he wrote it when he was um or started writing when he was at Brinkwell's um, which is the cottage that he rented out in rural Sussex. Mm-hmm. And at the same time as well that he was writing the chamber works, the piano quintet, the string quartet and the violin sonata. Mm-hmm. And so the cello concerto has got this real sort of chamber intimate feel to it. Um, you know, this is music. This is not the grand concerto. Of course, it's got its moments of grandeur, but most of all, it's just this beautiful sort of uh, microcosm. Yeah, it's a real elegy, isn't it, mm, as well? It's very for, intimate. Yeah, yeah, and for a lost age, you feel like... I guess in the same way with Strauss's Four Last Songs, you know, end of an era, you can have yeah, mm. that feeling is very <laughs> strong, isn't it? But it's it, it's incredible how the cello concerto has become probably the cello concerto that yeah. people aim to perform. You know, it's every sort of um, uh, cellist's pinnacle, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. concerto pinnacle. It's yeah. If you yeah. can if you can perform that in a in the way that you want to, then it's almost as if you've made it. Mm. Yeah. Although I do love the Dvorak cello concerto as well. That is also another. Good. <laughs> Also good. The cellists are quite lucky, actually. They do have, they do some, have good, some of the best repertoire. <laughs> <some> good pieces. <laughs> they, they really, really do. Um, so that's uh, obviously the performance and the feature in the September issue of the magazine. Rebecca, yeah. what else have we got this Well, issue? actually, one of the features that I was going to talk about, which leads quite nicely on from concertos, is we have a piece about cadenzas, which is... Um, one of the concerto's longest standing traditions in a sense, and one of the few remaining traces we have really of the age-old art of improvisation. Um, So Jessica Duchin has taken a look at the history of the cadenza, sort of taking us from the Baroque era via Beethoven, who sort of like most things paved the way for those written out cadenzas in the 19th century and and onwards, and then also looked at how modern-day classical performers tackle tackle the cadenza and what they do we've got interviews with um soprano carolyn sampson the pianist angela hewitt and violinist tasman little um so yeah it's a really Mm. lovely picture of the cadenza Mm. and actually i was particularly struck by one story um that she talks about which is uh about the ligeti violin concerto which tasman little has played and i remember it was at the proms in 2003 she played it with this computer screen music stand and the fact that she was doing that was kind of headline news I remember that at the time but I hadn't really realized that that Ligeti asked the performer to write their own cadenza using ideas from all the five movements so I think everyone was going well it's the the page turning that's the petrifying thing but actually the really petrifying thing was as a classical artist now we're not necessarily trained in the art of improvisation having to really provide the culmination of the concerto. I can can imagine sort of as a pianist back in the day when it was expected that you would be mostly at the back of your mind would be thinking, what am I going to do for the improvisation while you're playing the proper (laughs) solo part? You know, and this thing is, I mean, presumably when you get to the end of the first movement, you can even relax, even though you've still got two movements (laughs) to go. (laughs) Exactly. You know, it's an in, it's an insane demand. But um, I suppose back in the back in the nineteenth century and early twentieth century, you know, in France in particular, it was ex- still expected that all students would improvise mm. as part of their music courses. Mm. Um, and it's still very much in the organ world. I was about I to say in the organ. world. I remember when I had a few organ expected. lessons, they would try and get me to improvise. <laughs> Terrifying. Yeah. One of the reasons I gave up. <laughs> but I mean, I, I whenever I play for services, I still when the sermon is is going on, I'm still thinking, well, what the what 
what am I going to play Panicking, when yeah. the priest? And of course, you've got to bridge the gap between uh, the gospel being read in the in the nave and the priest going up into the pulpit to do the sermon. So you've got sometimes 30 seconds to a minute, depending on how large the church is, yeah. to fill with music. And you're thinking, what, what am I going to do? Mm-hmm. And and even and cadenzas, though, they've got to be in the right key. They've got to be the right length. They've got to be in the style of the concerto itself. It's 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 hard stuff. It's just the fluency of that. I, always, I mean, I guess there are some pianists like Gabriella Montero improvisation is one of her things and but I just yeah it's just really fascinating when people can do that and have the fluency and the ability to do it and and the the kind of wit as well because it's so exciting when you hear an improvisation and you recognize bits or you see how they played with a theme and had fun with it it is one of the most exciting things actually but I think it is quite a lost art like when when you think about how you read music I remember when I was learning the flute and the cadenzas are all written out in basically in exactly the same way and it was probably about like a few years before I realised that that was originally meant to be an improvisation I was playing it yeah. so on the money and like very very rigidly yeah. and when I learned that I was like oh my am I doing why What's am I doing this like, <laughs> but it's true like I used to play try and learn the, the Schumann piano concerto which I never, oh, yeah. never mastered but <laughs> the cadenza because that often is actually quite playable yeah and then but, but, but also you could work at it and be like try and master it in the same way you would do the rest yeah. of the solo part which yeah, that's interesting. Very interesting. for a great feature we've done on pushy parents in classical music of our great composers. And um, it's interesting for me because I went to Augsburg uh, a couple of months ago, which is the home of Leopold Mozart, who is the king of pushy parents. (laughs) Um, He's quite a contentious figure because people think he pushed too hard. He was responsible for kind of taking... um, Wolfgang and his sister Maria, all around Europe on these kind of prodigy travels. Um, But actually what he was, was this marketing man. He was just like, he was a brilliant kind of introducer um, and he gave up his position in court to do so. So we've kind of taken Leopold Mozart, who is, I think we're marketing his 200th anniversary this year. 300. 300. Close. I'm just looking at the <laughs> <laughs> It's funny, you know, pa- parents, you know, they have a responsibility to bring up their children, don't they? And their mm. responsibility to sort of know that they're not going to be doing handouts for the rest of their lives. Oh, yeah. Because I think probably most parents don't want kids to be actors, stroke musicians, stroke artists, because they're going to be having to, having to sub them. So, <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I think that's probably the reason. I mean, you know, so many composers were went, went into law, didn't they? And then came out. Um, as as mu- sort of musicians saying, mm. I don't want to do that. Mm. Vorjak, um, I suppose, wanted to. Uh, wasn't he encouraged to join the butcher firm, butchery firm as his father? Mm. So, I think there is a sense that parents simply don't want the burden. And ultimately, all of the parents that we've explored in this piece. So, there's Beethoven's father, who was. I think he's the worst. I mean, he actually. was abusive. So, yeah. diff- slightly different kettle of fish. But most, I mean, most of them have ended up producing these incredible children who've turned out to be our greatest composers so in a way they all succeeded but it's quite interesting to see their approach and how they influenced their yeah very talented offspring (laughs) I was very amused by the uh, entry about Sanson who who really was a a fantastic child prodigy um who was uh tutored by his mother and his great aunt but there's this little detail where apparently his mother 
opened his post for him every day of his adult life. But they got on very well. So mm. <laughs> a receptionist as well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it is it is a balance, isn't it? I mean, you know, you've got to be pushed. I mean, music is a chore before it's a pleasure. I mean, mm. we have to admit that. Yes. And, in fact, and... actually, that's a line that Laura Mvula, who's our music that changed me, she said that her father said to her, it's a discipline before it becomes a pleasure. There we go. And that stuck with her. And it's true because it's hard work sitting down to practice if, yeah. you know, there are lots of other distractions in life. But mm. I, and I, mean, I suppose there's that other truth, though, as well, that if you don't show the talent when you're really young for these mm. people who become so famous, it's probably not going to appear suddenly later. Mm. So in a way, <laughs> it's very important what the parents do. Yeah, to nature or nurture. Na- yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So before we kick off with sharing our favourite new recordings uh, in our first listen slot, um, we'd like to tell you about how you can get involved in sharing your own musical discoveries with us and, of course, the fellow readers. Plus, you can hear the choice of the latest recordings on our playlist curator page. So if you've been listening to something you particularly enjoy, do send us uh, the details of it to music at classical-music.com. You could be in with a chance being published on our Music to My Ears page. So it's time for our recommendations. And uh, every month we dig something up that's particularly caught our ears. So, Rebecca, what's it this month for you? Well, this is a disc by Gabriel Prokofiev, grandson of Sergei Prokofiev, who is actually our... Um, uh, Gabriel is our Meet the Composer this month as well. And he has a new disc of concertos. It's the first of two discs coming out on Signum Classics. And this disc is a saxophone concerto and a bass drum concerto. And I've just been really enjoying exploring this disc. Um, it's not chosen necessarily the most obvious uh, concerto instruments. The saxophone uh, concerto, he wanted to explore melody which is something, so the stereotype goes, modern composers are quite afraid of. Um, and then the bass drum concerto, he's written these really interesting notes about it. And he says, it's one of the most ubiquitous instruments of our time, one of the essential sounds of the 21st century, which is true. It kind of is everywhere, yeah. the bass drum. Mm. Um, sort of electronic music, club music. And I was very curious to hear it because... I always grew up loving classical music, but my brother loved drum and bass music and our home was often a bit of a musical (laughs) battleground. (laughs) So it was quite fun to find a concerto that's kind of melding those two things in in some places. And in fact, in the third movement, the Allegro Moderato Leggero, um, it's dedicated to the thud, 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 thud beat of club music. Um, And that's what we're going to hear now. Now I'm intrigued. It's a long time since I've heard that. I think we're going to enter another uh, sort of a different cosmos entirely, aren't we, of music for well, your quite, choice? Yes. So I have another on Signum Classics. This is Supersized Polyphony. And we're going to start by listening to a track by Hildegard von Bingen called Ovos Felices Radices.
So that was a lovely chant by Hildegard von Bingen. And that is interspersed in this album with Talis and Strigio, uh, all of which have kind of, they're, they're large, scale, large scale choral works from the 16th century. And then it's got these beautiful chants kind of peppered throughout. Um, and this recorded sound on it is absolutely amazing. I haven't heard anything in such amazing quality in a very long time. And you can hear every part of the choir. And there's, you know, th- these are massive works. They've got kind of 60 parts, some of them. And you can hear every every voice with such clarity. And those, those chants throughout are kind of, they're virtuosic. I've never heard her work sung in such a way that's given such space. And it's really ethereal and really stripped back. And it's got these seamless sustained notes underneath with this kind of incredible ethereal melodies over the top so it's like sort of drone yeah. drones and, yeah and the, i mean i suppose it's sort of breathing space between those mm. massive works really is the idea you can collect your thoughts because you know i suppose yeah. hearing strigio then talis and then it's you know lot. it can get a little bit kind <laughs> yeah. of but um, it doesn't surprise me sound quality is so good because signum i mean they draw on such fantastic engineers yeah and producers. i mean they really do mm. um yeah, so yeah. that was the Armonico Consort with the choir of Gonville and Keys College, Cambridge, under their musical directors, Christopher Monks and Geoffrey Weber. And that was on Signum Classics. Brilliant, thank you. I'm going to go for um, uh, actually an album I didn't really have any preconceptions at all about. Uh, so Bryce Desner is the um, uh, lead guitarist of the band The National. Um, not, not a band I'm hugely uh, au fait <laughs> with. Um, and I'm always slightly suspicious, I suppose, of, of people who cross over from pop into classical. But I have to say Bryce Tessner is, is, is really cultivating a voice for himself. And this is a wonderful piece of music. So this is a double piano concerto that he's written for um, the Lebec sisters, Katia and Mariella. And, and they've become very close friends of his. And he's basically been inspired to write this. He wrote a, a previous uh, suite for them called El Chan, which was a suite for piano and orchestra. But this Concerto for two pianos, a real whirlwind effort. Um, clearly uh, written by someone who seems to have been completely immersed in the classical music language uh, for a very long time. So I don't know why we haven't heard more from him before. Anyway, the performance is fantastic. It's with the Orchestra de Paris, conducted by Matthias Pincher, uh, with the Lebec sisters. Uh, and this is Bryce Desner's uh, Concerto for Two Pianos. <laughs> That was the Lebec sisters um, with the Orchestra de Paris playing Bryce Desner's piano concerto, or two piano concerto, and that's on Deutsche Grammophon, and it's out. The album's actually called El Chan, named after the suite that he previously written for them. I think it's wonderful music, sort of film music, mm. you know, a bit of sort of minimalism in mm. there, um, quite a sort of big romantic... So it sounds like references to previous yeah. concertos, that kind of... The real flourishly open, yeah. flourish opening that he you knows get what from he's doing, like Greek or the Schumann or anything <laughs> yeah. like that. Yeah, absolutely. So, uh, so that's out now. Exciting. And that brings us to the end, I think, of the September issue podcast. Thank you for joining us, and we'll be back in a few weeks' time to talk about few the October issue. <laughs> uh, so join us again when we do that. So it's goodbye from all of us. Goodbye. Goodbye. The BBC Music.
magazine in Paul. 